0: To 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want to give us a context. Uh, we'll read two of the verses that we have looked at prior. Uh, we'll read. Uh, we'll start reading at uh, verse 11 uh, to verse 21, and today we will finish uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 uh, in our in our uh, sermon. Uh, We look to 1 Corinthians 4, and we look at uh, verse 11, and it reads, To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Do not write these I do not write these things, brethren, to shame you. Uh, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church now some have become arrogant as though i were not coming to you but i will come to you soon if the lord wills and i shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant but their power for the kingdom of god does not consist in words but in power what do you desire shall i come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness may god bless the reading of this text Uh, we see in this that paul is uh, associating the Corinthians with why with the why he does what he does uh, with respect to the ministry before them and he's also establishing why he's writing to them and why he must take the tone that he does so uh, essentially what, what I have entitled this is why Paul wrote these things why Paul wrote these things because that is the context before us it's not simply an intermission that he takes As we look to the text, but Paul is explaining and examining his own motives, and he's also explaining to them uh, why he is approaching them in the way that he is, because he has love and compassion toward them. So Paul is dealing with this question of why. And it is the one question, this question of why uh, that he explains why he's writing It is the one question and motive that I believe separated Paul's genuineness from the coldness of the false teachers that were uh, that would uh, be elevated among the Corinthians, but also the coldness that would seek to uh, dethrone true fellowship and true worship among the church in Corinth and those who attended. It is the question that Paul aims still and he wanted to place in their hearts, but he aims still to answer for the Corinthians and instill it in them. And he wanted to instill it in their minds And he wanted to do so to better guide them in the truth. So he's telling them, I want to give you the reason why I am writing uh, the things that I'm writing so that I can better help you walk in the ways uh, that God has commanded us uh, to walk. It was also his explanation of the why that should have caused the Corinthians to trust him, because to this point you see a developing mistrust of Paul among the Corinthians. He was not trying to lord these things over them. We know that because he says it explicitly in this particular text. He says it in the first text, uh, in the first verse uh, that we look at in the context that we're in this morning. He was not trying to humiliate them in the things that he said. Paul loved them. And because he loved them, he spoke to them a certain kind of way. He wanted to build them up by exposing those areas. They were weak in order that they would be strengthened. So really, he wrote the things he wrote uh, to build them up. He wasn't trying to humiliate them. He wasn't trying to shame them. And so in verse 13, uh, he essentially says, let's read it. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Well, we look at that because Paul is not saying that that then is a cause for disappointment and is therefore the reason for which he's writing to them. Paul instead says what he says in verse 14. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He said he wanted to admonish or warn them as though they were his own beloved children. He not only wanted what God had for them, but he also wanted God to bless them for walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which they had been called it this certainly echoes of some of the things that paul says in colossians and also ephesians he wants them to walk a certain way so therefore he wants to show them and demonstrate to them that he loves and cares for them so that they would be walking how god commanded so these warnings that he gave them are necessary because they were settling for less that was the issue that the corinthians were settling for less than what Paul wanted for them. And more so they were settling for less than what God wanted for them. So he again he loved them and he demonstrated that by telling them why he ministered to them. He told them why. That, that simple act is something that uh, those who do not love Christ and pretend to care for others. Pretend to care for others. They never tell you why they're doing what they're doing. In fact you have to figure it out. Or, or it has to happen upon you or you get in some kind of contending situation and then you figure out here's the why. here's why they do what they do but they leave you guessing. With Paul that's not the case. he tells them why he cared for them. he tells them why he wanted to avoid uh, why he wanted them to avoid everything that would cause them to be divided against Christ and one another. And so he tells them, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you. A sternness, an encouragement, a correction, as my beloved children. And so Paul's allusion to fatherhood, we'll look at it in verse 15 as well, is certainly apostolic. And I'll explain what that means. In verse 15, he says, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, countless instructors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, listen to this, I became your father through the gospel. So his allusion to this fatherhood that he sees himself uh, with respect to the church in Corinth was apostolic. It wasn't Roman Catholic. It wasn't a life on life scenario of the modern evangelical mind. It wasn't what the charismatics do with the apostleship and continue it and then make themselves to be fathers and lords. But this was apostolic. They had for themselves many instructors because Paul wasn't physically with them. So they had other people teaching them. And we'll see that even in this text. He says, I'm going to send Timothy to you. They had others teaching them. But Paul says, I stand in a place where I serve you as a father through the gospel. I'm not the father, but I serve you as a father. Now, again, what he says is not against Jesus's prohibition to call no one your father. And I say that because Paul had already taught to this point that he had already laid the foundation of Christ before them. And that Christ himself is responsible for that foundation. And Christ is the only sure foundation upon which the church is established. So Paul was not trying to elevate himself above that standard nor was he trying to establish himself as a new standard nor did paul want them to parade the titular father before him as though he was superior to them but instead what he's saying is i am showing you the sternness i'm showing you the compassion and love a father has toward his children just as what he is demonstrating toward the corinthians He doesn't cite any reason for this that is superficial. He says, I am putting myself forward as your father through the gospel, through the good news and through its lens that he wanted them to see him this way. It was only through that lens. So he says, I became your father through the gospel. And then he connects that his conduct demonstrated that that his care for them demonstrated similar to how a father would care for his beloved children that Paul himself acted this way toward the beloved Corinthians. He loved them as a father would. He didn't want to be venerated as the so-called fathers of Roman Catholicism and other uh, false ideologies teach. He didn't want to just be thought of as a father. He wanted to be imitated. As one who cared and demonstrated compassion. So he is showing this to them. And he wants them to respond a certain way. So he says for in Christ Jesus. For in Christ Jesus. He became this father to them. In Christ. So now we know it's not following the same prohibition. That Christ later. uh, I'm sorry Christ earlier says in the gospels. Where he says call no one your father. Well what Christ was saying is. Do not bestow a title on anyone that would indicate they are supreme. And we had talked about that text when we were in Matthew, but it's good to recall it to our mind. So then we already see that God's command in Christ is not something that Paul had breached. And Jesus did not want men to use the term father as though they were more superior than the heavenly father. So when Paul mentions this from his mouth to the ears of the Corinthians, he was not saying that he thought himself more superior. He was saying, literally, I have acted as a father towards you. I have cared for you. I have sought to meet your needs and your provision. I have loved you unconditionally. And I have done this not on some value system, but I've done this through the gospel in Jesus Christ. So there is a standard that you could that you could connect this to. We see it connected toward Paul's walk. Even as you work your way through this particular passage and all that will follow and all that we know about Paul's ministry in general in the New Testament, you see it in his conduct toward them. You see that Paul is acting like much more than simply a quote unquote church leader. You see that his conduct toward them is showing that he loves them. That you see he is working out his own sanctification Among them, and he's helping them work out theirs. And so there's this love for them that he has that he's saying, remember me in this way. I don't want you to be severed from the reality that I love you in Christ. And therefore, I want you to walk with him in a very clear way, because they weren't. They were walking away from Christ. And we know that by the fact that the factions existed and Paul sought to cast down their factions But we see it in his conduct. We see it very plainly that Paul was not simply telling them to imitate him and he was not simply throwing around these terms such as gospel and father. But we see that Paul acted this way toward them. And so Paul was acting in a way that was worthy of imitation. Only because of his position in Christ. So in verse 16, he says it. Therefore, it's a connector. He says, I want you because of this. Because of how you have seen me conduct myself, I want you, I encourage you, I strongly encourage you to be imitators of me. Imitate me. He didn't shy away from that. He wanted them to imitate him, however, in Christ Jesus. Imitate that which belongs to Christ. And if they did not know how to conduct themselves, this is why this letter is Such a stern one to them because he tells them very early on, if you do not know how to conduct yourself, you could trust that Paul is worthy of imitation only because Christ deemed him worthy. So they were not without the example of Paul himself being someone whom they could emulate in the faith with respect to how do I then conduct myself in Christ Jesus? And I believe people are very acquainted with emulating and imitating others in the religious climate with which we find ourselves. But they're imitating the wrong examples. Paul is saying you can imitate me because you see my life. You see my love. You see that all that is connected to the gospel, that which changed us all. He'll speak about that when he rebukes immorality in chapter five. But he'll also say, I have walked in this way before you. You've seen it for yourself. It's very close to what Jesus was saying to his disciples in his ministry. You have seen the way I've con- I've done nothing in secret. I have loved my disciples. I have kept them. I haven't lost any of them. And so Paul is saying, I have commended myself in my conscience and in total person to Christ. And my walk is evident of that. You can imitate what you see regarding that. Christ has deemed me worthy of imitation. So imitate him, he says, in these things concerning the gospel and not just the gospel as though that's severed from everything it implies. Essentially, what Paul is saying is, I want you to emulate me in the gospel and all of its implications. And I say that because he's going to then tell them in verse 17, that's the reason that he's sending Timothy to them to reinforce everything they ought to know and what they need to know to continue to walk in the way that they're supposed to walk. So yet, in loving them, in this extension of him wanting to encourage them to imitate him because his walk was sound in Christ, he was sound in the faith, he demonstrated and practiced what he preached. He wanted to send a delegate among them. He wanted to send someone who would love them like he would. He wanted to send someone who would help them believe that Christ had ultimately sent them uh, an individual and individuals who loved him. In other words, Paul's love for them led him to help them. He wanted to help them. He wasn't a far off distant individual. He wanted to be with them. So you had those who wanted to harm them among them. And they were pretending to help them. But Paul said, I really want to help you. I want to send Timothy. I love you. I care about you. I'm a father who wants to provide for you because that's the relationship I see that I have with you. And so in doing so, I want to send someone who is going to help you. And so he sends someone not picking from individuals or friends or his host of buddies who are vetted by some distant, Subjective system. He says, I'm sending you Timothy. And you know why I'm sending you Timothy? Because Timothy is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And Timothy has a specific responsibility. You see, Timothy walks with Christ, and I expect him to do that when he's among you. And so he also has walked with Paul, because Paul is walking with Christ. And so Paul wanted to authenticate his life in Christ. Among the Corinthians, but more than that, he wanted them to follow Christ through those he had sent. And then even still more than that, he says in verse 17. And so I'm not just sending them to you. He will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ. He's going to remind you. He's going to bear witness, bear testimony that I am an apostle of Jesus Christ and I walk in this way. And he's going to not only my personal ways, but he's going to remind you of the things I teach, because Paul is conflating his ways with the will of God. You see it here. My ways, which are in Christ, he's saying the way I walk, the way I conduct myself, the way I'm addressing things, my ministry, it's in Christ. I'm not sending him to do some kind of PR for me. This isn't a public, a public relations campaign. (coughs) I'm sending him to remind you of my ways, which are in Christ. And you know why? Because they had started to doubt Paul's ways. And so Paul says, I need to send help just as I teach everywhere in every in every church. I don't want you to miss that. Timothy was going to remind what Paul taught concerning Christ. That's a powerful thing. And how Paul lived for Christ. He wanted them to be reminded because, remember, they're remote from Paul. And people are starting to get in the way and creep in and question these things. But here you also see Paul's humility in entrusting the testimony concerning Christ in his own life to someone else. As he also modeled consistency in faithfulness among the Corinthians. Consistency, not without the troubles, not without the trials, because a few short verses earlier, he reminds them that. The apostles are severely persecuted. But he says, I'm going to remind you of faithfulness by sending someone who is also faithful, but someone whom I have poured the truth concerning Christ into not just simply Paul's life. But he's saying my ways, which are in Christ. That's the key. My ways, which are in Christ, not just my ways. But yet, as I've said, some had dismissed Paul. Because he says, I'm sending Timothy, he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul modeled this consistency in every church. He taught the same things. He said the same things. He was about the same things. So he could expect that if he sent someone who was remote to them as well, that they would be preaching the same things that Paul himself preached. But again, some dismissed him. Look at verse 18. Now, some have become arrogant. Well, how have they become arrogant? As though I were not coming to you. Some dismissed them. (coughs) Some believed he were not going to. He wasn't going to visit them. Some tried to make too much of his absence. And you see that in the raising up of the factions. They say, well, Paul's not here. Therefore, we have to replace Paul And his ministry with something else. Filler. And you'll see that all the way throughout. That they also replaced holiness with sin in their midst. That they replaced replaced consecration with desecration. With respect to the Lord's table. You'll see this. And so they made too much of his absence. But listen to this. They made too much of his sending someone on his behalf as well. In this sense, he couldn't please them. And it's why Paul says what he says. They see Paul as being weak for not being among them, but they also see Paul as being weak for sending someone on his behalf. And I believe that's why if you look at the previous words that are written in these uh, in this text. When he says. In verse six of chapter four, now these things, brethren, I have. Figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. And look at this so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Well, you see, this arrogance, this pride is a huge issue that they're dealing with. And so Paul is. He's telling them, I don't want you to be arrogant, but some of you are becoming arrogant. You see how quickly it happened that I'm warning you about arrogance, but at the same time, you're becoming arrogant. And so they again, they made too much of his absence. And I'm getting that as you read the letter, but they also make too much of his sending someone. So they're kind of taunting. him. Well, why don't you come yourself? And since you're not here, you don't really care as much as you say you do. But he also said the arrogant in verse six, go beyond what is written. And that's what they were doing in this. They were judging in matters that had not been fully disclosed. They were attributing motives to Paul that he didn't possess. First, they do it in worshiping him and then they do it in slandering him. And that all, as we haven't even reached chapter five yet, they've done this. But I believe that when Paul is referring to what he's saying here, I believe he's referring back to those individuals just a few short verses away, because these are the people to whom he's speaking. But listen, what made them arrogant? If you just examine this, if we step back and look, what made them arrogant is something we talked about in Romans. They were on their own schedule. That's what made them arrogant. And they were on their own schedule because essentially in raising up the factions, Chloe's people being very concerned about this, what these individuals were saying is the church ought to be built this way. Paul, your way is not good enough. So we need factions. We need factions. And we need the factions to function like this. And then you see in chapter five, they're going to say, well, Let's cover sin up in the church. Let's let a man have his father's wife and think nothing of it. I mean, the Gentiles don't do that, but let's let that be in the life of the church. Let's encourage lawsuits among the believers. Let's also encourage a desecration of the Lord's table. It's why Paul mentions even marriage again in this context. He begins to deal with the intimacy of it, the loyalty of it. Because he's dealing with an increasing disloyalty among those who are saying that they are following Christ in the church. They were arrogant. They were on their own schedule. Listen, they had no reason. Paul had given them no reason to invalidate his own words. He'd given them no reason to mistrust him. But they did so anyway. That's called arrogance. That's not called discernment. When you mistrust somebody who is faithful, that's arrogance. That's going beyond a standard that God has already established to measure if the person belongs to Christ. And that's why Paul warned them, look, I'm going to figuratively apply these things to myself and to Apollos. Not because they're not standards or not because they don't exist as standards, but because they don't really apply to myself and Apollos. But I'll inject us into the uh, situation to show you how serious these things are. But Paul did need to remind them. And he said, I'm going to remind you can see the sternness even in 17. You certainly see that there is a compassion and love, but there's a sternness even in 17. It puts in a greater context the he will remind you of my ways. You're forgetting. them, So he's going to come to you and remind. you. And I think so much of Paul's ministry and I think so much of the apostolic cause related to Christ is to continue to remind people why the Christians do what we do. Why the one who serves them, even in ministering to them, does what he does. I think that is the task of the minister to say, here's why we do what we do. Here's why we don't revert to this act or this action. And so Paul wanted to squash their arrogance. So he reminded the Corinthians in verse 19 that he was certain to come to them soon. He meets it head on. Now, some have become arrogant, not all, but some as though I were not coming to you. But a little leaven leavens the the whole dough. 19, he says, but I will come to you soon. I will come to you soon. And if the Lord's will, I'm, I'm coming with a specific task in mind. I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Because arrogant people have a lot to say. But arrogant people cannot demonstrate God's power. They don't have a lot that they're doing that's tied to God's kingdom. They have a lot that they're saying about God's kingdom and a lot that they may be saying about God's people who actually function in his kingdom. But they don't have a lot of power. They have no power at all. So Paul says, when I come, I'm going to deal with their wordiness. Because it is their arrogance that's on display through the things that they're saying. And I can see what they're saying by what they're doing. And so Paul said, I'm coming soon. I'll be there soon. Against those who even in this thing seem to try to cause division. And their problem, too, was this is why they were arrogant, because this isn't this isn't a small thing. They're saying that the Apostle Paul is not coming to visit the church. Well, that's a lie. That's not true. But they're also trying to say that he's not there because he doesn't care for the church. It's why I believe Paul is demonstrating to them that he does care. And so what they're doing is they are sowing uncertainty in matters of certainty. They're sowing uncertainty or uncertainty in matters of certainty. That's arrogance. To make a certain thing seem uncertain. I mean that applies to doctrine. That applies to practice. That's arrogance. And so Paul says I'm going to deal with their arrogance. Because all this is tied to the kingdom of God. So as an apostle if he says he's going to be at a place. Or he's coming to a place to serve and to minister. And that's where God has sent them. Then he's coming. And to question that was to question Christ himself. To question the divine schedule that God had ordered for the New Testament church. And so Paul is saying, that's not tolerable. And then he almost, in chapter 5, he turns it on his head and says, wait, we're arguing about this. And you're tolerating sin there. So you're so worried about whether I'm going to show up or not, but you're also tolerating immorality. So you stand on no foot or grounds to measure or test or even judge the matters concerning Christ until you deal with those matters that are devastating the fellowship in the life of the church. Paul did not settle for an illegitimate church. He did not settle for it. And he certainly didn't settle for arrogance among the people who are there. But their arrogance was displayed in rhetoric. It was displayed in words. And I say that because of what Paul says about them. Not the word. I'm not coming to have conversations, Q&A's, discussions. What I'm coming to do is I'm coming to find out if there's actually power here. I want to see if these people, because they're certainly using their words to question everything that the apostles stand for and everything that Christ stands for. And they're erecting things to demonstrate that they have power. So now when I come, I want to see if they truly have power. I don't want to hear a lot of talking. I want to see what they do and if what they're doing has power. I think we learned something from that. I think we learned something because Paul says we're going to learn something. In verse 20, the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. It doesn't consist in words, but in power. So their arrogance was displayed in rhetoric, words absent of power. Not words used to promote the truth concerning Christ, thereby displaying the power of God and his truth. He's not saying that that's non-existent. What he's saying is that there are much speaking people who use words and people who manipulate with words similar to the wisdom we find in James with respect to the power of the tongue. And those words are not a demonstration of God's power in his kingdom. They may invoke emotion. They may they may make people feel sentimental, but they are not a display or evidence of God's affirmation and his power among the people. So they were absent. Their words were absent of the power through the apostles ministry, because in Paul's words, you see the power of God evident in not only his words, but in his actions. Well, well, how do you know that? Because we're still talking about it. In the New Testament church context, a couple thousand years later, we're still talking about the Corinthian church. We're still talking about Paul's ministry among them because it was directly connected to Christ. And we certainly are still talking about him or else there's no point to do any of this at all. And so we see that Paul, the power was in the demonstration of Affiliation and attachment to God's kingdom through the teaching, through the walk, through his sanctification and making that plain before the people but also in the motives behind his ministry directly tied to Jesus Christ. Why he ministered to the people was to bring them to Christ, for them to be near to Christ. Now, the distinction here is Those who were saying that's what they're doing, and those who are actually doing that. These people didn't see themselves as worldly Gentiles. They saw themselves as a strong church. Paul is saying you're weak. And you're not only weak, you're arrogant. Oh, and you're not only arrogant, you have no power. It's just words. It's just words, divisive words at that, but they're just words. And I think that teaches us a lesson because we have said it quite often, and I believe you believe it strongly. God cares about motive. He cares about the right motive, why we do what we do. It's why Paul writes this. It's why he even tells them I'm writing for this reason. If I were arrogant, I'd be writing to shame you and humiliate you. But I'm not here to do that. Paul shows that he was aligned to the kingdom of God in its function, in its purpose, and the demonstration of its power among the churches. Ask yourself in the world around you, the religious world, I'm not talking about the world links. When a church says we represent Christ, what are you doing to demonstrate his power? Oh, well, we have this, we have that. We've just put on a new shiny this and that. We just bought this And it's all aesthetics. But when you go to them about the scripture, they have nothing for you. Well, if I'm about the kingdom of God and displaying its power post apostolic age, what does that then look like? It looks like where his power is vested. His power is vested in his word. So when I bring forth his word, I am demonstrating his power. When I tell you what the apostles did and said with the full disclosure and full clarity of the testimony of the Holy Spirit among you, I am displaying God's power. I'm displaying his power, whether it is four thousand of us or five of us. I am displaying his power among you. So Paul shows this because that's what Paul is doing. But he's demonstrating in the apostolic sense his power among them as demonstrated by the signs and the wonders and the things that were befitting of the apostolic ministry. And he's saying that distinguishes me from those who are saying they're apostles and they're not. What distinguishes us from the false churches and those who are playing church is that we are demonstrating the power of of God through his word. We are not only proclaiming it, we are living it out. We are following its implications. We are testifying about it before others and we are living as though it is absolutely true. The market manner of our life says we believe it. We have faith in it. We trust it. And Paul shows this. He shows this alignment. It was then up to them how he came to them. That's what he says. He says, "I'm, I'm going to show up. You see the fighting Paul for the glory of God. I'm going to show up. He doesn't shy away. He doesn't say, oh, I just I just want to testify. I just want to write letters for a living. Paul says, I'm coming. And when I show up, I'm going to deal with the areas. And when I show up, I'm going to show you what it really looks like to be in the kingdom of God. And listen, when I get there, you had better correct all these things I wrote about or else You are unsanctioned as a church. So Paul says, how do you want you want me to come in such a way? Not just uh, we have to step back here. What do you desire? He says, shall I come to you with a rod? Yeah, he's speaking that fatherly language, but he's also saying, do you want me to come to you in judgment? Should I come to you in such a way to render what you've done as completely unsanctioned and an open rebellion toward God? Or with love and the spirit of gentleness? Well, they would might certainly say with love and the spirit of gentleness. And I believe the question is posed because of what then follows this text. Paul is asking this question because he's saying, you better get your house in order. You want to know how I can come with love and the spirit of gentleness? If you take care of the sins that are plaguing your church. He says, I'll come with a rod if you keep being arrogant. If you keep thinking I'm not going to show up and if you keep covering for sin, which is why you probably don't want me to show up. And so Paul, he poses this question. It is complete. It's not up to him. It's up to them how he would come to them. And what I love about Paul's compassion for the church, you can see it. He's not threatening them with an idle threat and he's not threatening them personally. He's saying, all I'm saying to you is in Christ. If Christ were walking this earth, he would be speaking the same way. But listen, better for you to deal with me than to deal with him when he returns. So how do you want me to show up? This is very much eschatological. His ultimatum to them is on the basis of what they desire, but not simply what they desire Do they first desire to deal with their sins? Paul says, I'll show up. I'll come there. I'll be there. But are you a church? Do you want me to show up in such a way so as to correct? Or do you want fellowship? So far, they've shown they don't want fellowship. So Paul is saying, I need to correct you now. So that when I show up, I can enjoy the fellowship. It's such a contrast to how we ended Romans. Because you see, the church in Rome was certainly in this fellowship place. And in Corinth, they're challenging Paul on issues that you would say to yourself wait a minute, we're talking about, they're questioning whether Paul wants to show up there? Yes. It shows you how far off the course they had become. That they're not even simply challenging on doctrinal issues yet. They're going there. But they're questioning Paul himself and being contrarian to him in matters that are already settled. He said, I'm coming to you. Well, their sin is causing them to even doubt that. And so Paul's saying, I have to address that. And then. Let's look at, as we close this sermon this morning, let's look at the first two verses. The first two verses of chapter five, because this is where this leads. It's why Paul says, I'm coming. You need to deal with the sin before I show up, or I'm going to deal with the sin when I show up. I mean, that was what an apostle did. So many say, oh, I want to be like Paul the apostle, and they don't want to deal with sin. Look at verse one of chapter five. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. Oh, by the way, it's not just your factions. It's your immorality. And then look what he says. An immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife, this adultery with their father's wife you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed will be removed from your midst. That's the issue. They're not mourning in their sins. So you see, a couple things have happened. The fallout from the factions is not a static thing. You raise up factions, you will cover for sin because you can only protect the worship of man by concealing his sins. When we worship Christ, he's sinless. We need not cover for him. We simply proclaim him and testify to his perfection and holiness. But I also believe if we rewind just a little bit, I'm gonna tell you why I'm saying this. I believe it's also why he mentions what fathers ought to be like. They lost grip of that in this church. A father allowing this also doesn't say the father doesn't know. Seems like the father's allowing it. They're losing touch with what that looks like. And if you lose touch with what that looks like, you are desecrating what God has desired for the family in that context. And so they were striking against that. And I I say that because you'll also see that further down the line, Paul begins to deal with marriage from this incident, so I believe leading up to it, he's dealing with fathers and he's showing that that orientation must not only be a family thing or a patriarchal thing. It's certainly that. But beyond that, it ties into the gospel in Christ. But he's also demonstrating that marriage is that sacred institution of God. And that it should not be desecrated the way it is. And so he'll later on, he'll go into what it looks like to deal with marriage. You see, it's running rampant in Corinth. And Paul seeks to deal with it. And he seeks to come to them and deal with it very soon. Let's pray.